holiness because of what Greg was talking about. The splendor of his holiness is not rooted in us. It's rooted in Jesus. So for that, uh, we need to pray and ask for God to cause his will to happen in this remainder of the service. So let's join, join me as we do that. Lord Jesus, it is your blood combined with your resurrection that saves, never fails us. We fail often. We sin. We fail to believe. We fail to trust. And your faithfulness continues forever and ever and will continue all the way to the end of our lives until you return. That's what we're counting on. Uh, not in vain, but with absolute certainty, more than anything about our lives, we know that you are 100% faithful and your salvation is 100% effective. So as we have sung and praised and given and now give ourselves to hearing of your word, we know that we need constant intake for our output to be rooted and grounded in Christ. We have nothing to offer people for eternal good, except for Jesus Christ. So may his glory be richly engaging for our hearts this morning through your word. Help me to make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. In Christ's name, amen. So the end is near. A lot of theories about how the world might end. I don't know what your favorite one is. Of course, if you are a a Bible student, you've been around church for a while, uh, you know the, the right answer is about when Jesus returns. Maybe the how exactly that's going to happen, we're not told all the details in the Bible, but we do have a lot about the fact that the end is coming. Some of the theories out there include nuclear war, global warming. How about asteroid, get hit by an asteroid? Or how about a super virus? and maybe even attacked by aliens. Maybe that's your favorite one, I don't know. But we do know that the Bible affirms the world in its present form is going to end. And Peter gives us a pretty straightforward formula. As we've been going through this series in 1 Peter, standing firm in grace, we know that Peter is very future-oriented. He's constantly pushing us to look forward to the certainty of Christ's return and the certainty of what we have in Christ. He's already purchased for us all that we need, and yet we haven't seen the total fulfillment of his kingdom yet. And so that's what we long for, that's what we live for, is what Christ has yet to bring for us, as well as his present goodness to us and keeping us in relationship with him. But what Peter says, and what the scripture is really concerned with, is not all the details about how what end times are going to look like, but what Peter and the New Testament writers are most concerned with is how do we live in light of that. So I'll tell you up front, and then we'll read and see if you see this in the text from 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. But what he says is, in light of the coming end, in light of the end being at hand, we should pray, love, and be hospitable, and serve in view of the end. Now, how's that for a title for a bestseller? Maybe like Eat, Pray, Love. Now, I know nothing about that book. I just know it because it's kind of catchy. So instead of Eat, Pray, Love... Pray, love, be hospitable, and serve. And so these are the four things that Peter says that we ought to be about in, in living in light of the end. And so uh, we're going to stick with Peter's whole 
scope of those four things because any one of those four things could be a message in and of itself. And so we could pick one and, and get you really convicted or stick with four and dilute the conviction. So let's see how we do with a diluted conviction this morning about four things living in light of end times. So let's look at this text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, again, Peter's very future-oriented in this whole letter. In the couple of verses just preceding verse 7 and verses 5 and 6, he talked about the final judgment in verse 5 of chapter 4. And he talked about our vindication and victory through the resurrection that Christ has, will accomplish for us in verse 6. So those things haven't happened yet. But in verse 7, he reminds his readers that the end of all things is at hand. The end of history is near. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. So what does that mean? Uh, was Peter wrong to say that the end was near? And Peter wasn't alone in talking about the nearness of the end. If you have read much of the, of the New Testament, you can find, for example, John the Apostle saying, Children, it is the last hour in 1 John 2. Or Paul talked about the coming day of the Lord and the return of Christ as if they were very near. And as talked about the last days as if they are already here. In fact, in Revelation 22.20, almost the very last book in the Bible, has Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. And that was in the 90s. So again, we're almost 2,000 years after that. So what, what is going on with those kinds of things? We know God is not confused about time. So we need to say that right up front. Uh, we know that he wasn't making wild guesses. And he's not uh, constantly revising his plans about... Christ's return, hoping he eventually gets it right, right? So we know that's not the case. So what Jesus and the New Testament writers meant when they said the time is near is this, that the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated the last days. The last days are upon us. There's no more events yet preceding the, the return of Christ. Uh, in other words, since Jesus completed his work of redemption and ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, we are now in the last phase of God's unfolding plan of redemption. We're in the final stretch of human history until God's kingdom comes in full with the return of Christ. So he could come in any generation, but we are in that last stretch. So whenever you see that in the New Testament, that's what it's talking about. We're in that last stretch, that last phase of God's plan. There is no other major event coming except the full meal deal, the fullness of his kingdom coming. That's what we're anticipating. Now, it may kind of feel like the end of a basketball game. You know how that is. The last two minutes take about 20 minutes because there's all kinds of timeouts and commercial breaks and they keep stretching it out. It may feel like that, but in God's timing, we're really close. 
So he says the end of all things is at hand. So what is that end like? Is it going to be bad? Well, uh, in some texts it describes it as a burning and dissolving of the present universe. Peter's second letter talks about that, kind of a burning and dissolving. In other words, it's a reconstituting, a reboot of all creation, also described as the new heavens and the new earth. So it's not an end and, oh my goodness, this is a disaster, but an end and great things are coming, way great things. I mean, all the stuff that we hate in this world from tornadoes to temper tantrums are going by the wayside when Jesus returns. So it's good. Uh, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's in Revelation 21. So all things, he's making them new. And he's in the process now of laying all the groundwork for that. So now when Christians talk about the world coming to an end, uh, unbelievers often assume we are fanatics, uh, extremists or naive and gullible to believe religious myths and so on, and fables. And throughout church history, some of us have kind of given that impression that that is how we are because we have acted weirdly sometimes about end times. There's nowhere the New Testament never encourages kooky behavior or the setting of dates for the end of all things. So we, we ought not to do that. How does Peter say we are to live in view of the end? In view of the fact that the end is near. That the end is near doesn't mean it's time to become emotionally unglued or reckless. Uh, Peter's not calling people to quit their jobs spend all kinds of time obsessing over signs of the end times, stockpiling goods and weapons, or any other abnormal, unproductive, or faithless or foolish types of behavior. At the same time, we are not to be indifferent about the coming end, but we're just not to be foolish. Martin Luther, the reformer from the 1500s, was asked what would he do if he knew the end was going to come right away. And he said he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. So, Continuing faithfulness is what the scripture calls us to, not fanatical behavior. So Peter says, since the end of all things is at hand, therefore we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, we need to keep alert and clear-minded for prayer so we can pray. Real praying involves the full engagement of all of our faculties, of our minds, our wills, and emotions. Uh, weak, aimless, um, haphazard prayers are not effective. How many would say your prayer life, don't raise your hand, is weak, aimless, and haphazard? I would say too much of the time I find that to be my struggle. Weak, aimless, and haphazard. So it's hard work to pray, and we need all of our mind and heart faculties enlisted in prayer. We must think in view of God's truth, what he wants, what he wills, and feel the sorrows and joys of what we are praying about. In other words, not to numb and dumb ourselves down so that prayer is is not intense, but to let ourselves feel the full weight and freight of God's promises and the pains of living in this world. That's how Jesus prayed. When he was in the garden, he didn't say, God, help me to not feel the pain. But because he felt the pain, he prayed with intensity, and he prayed in terms of reality. So Peter says we should keep our minds and hearts uncluttered, unanesthetized. That means, a, that means not, not fuzzy thinking. At their full operating capacity means that prayer should get our best energy, not the leftovers, if we even give it that. So we need to think sensibly as we consider how to pray in view of the massive needs and the greatness of God's promises. We need to keep in constant communication with God. That's what a lot of prayer is, constantly talking to God, constantly 
you know, sometimes we overwhelm ourselves by thinking, well, I need to carve out two or three hours or even 15 minutes, and that would be good. 15 minutes, an hour of prayer is fantastic, and so hopefully sometimes we're able to do that. But a lot of frequency, high frequency of praying is better than hardly ever praying at all. And so constantly be seeking, asking, praising, pleading, pouring out our hearts to God. After all, the end of this present age is the beginning of the eternal, unclouded fellowship with God. And so prayer is that, that foretaste of glory divine. And as hindered and hampered as it is in this fallen flesh that we still live in, that is where we, we rev up the engines for seeing God face to face. So no more, you know, when we're with God, when we're in full glory, there's going to be no more falling asleep while we're praying, like I did last night. And I wasn't trying to fall asleep. Now, if you're wanting to fall asleep, it's great. But if you're trying to be alert to pray, I'm reading this text, I'm trying to pray, and I'm dozing off. I mean, that's just our weakness. So until then, we need to keep work at keeping maximum clarity in our hearts and minds. Don't despair of prayer. However hard it is, however sluggish you find it to be, just keep after praying. Pray that God's name be as exalted, be exalted as holy, that his kingdom come. In other words, you know the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be seen and displayed and magnified as holy and great in all the earth. And may your kingdom come and your will be done. I mean, we pray those things. If, if you don't do anything else this week, every day pray the Lord's Prayer. And if you don't pray the whole Lord's Prayer, pray those first three lines because those are fantastic. And then stop and think, what am I asking God to do? I'm asking Him to intervene, bring it into this thing, and bring in the kingdom. Sin-free, holiness, exalting, Jesus-centered, eternal glory. That's what we're supposed to be longing for. So it's not, oh my goodness, end times are coming. So our natural drift is away from that kind of view. That's why we need texts like this to continue to call us back to how we should be praying. In that eternal time when his will will fully be done, there will be no more opposition. No more opposition on our part or anyone else's. Well, so that's keeping our minds clear, our heads clear to pray. In verse 8, he moves on and talks about other ways we are to respond. And he says... Keep loving one another earnestly, for love overlooks offenses. So when we get stressed out, worried, or fearful about things present, things future, we tend to, grow, uh, to look inward to ourselves, right? We tend to get self-focused. When we're suffering, like the people that Peter wrote to, they were a suffering church. And so Peter was saying to these suffering believers, in your suffering and in view of the nearness of the end, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, meaning the central thing above all that we are to be about is loving one another. We are God's family. We should be loving one another. And that, that the end is near doesn't mean every, every person for himself or herself. That the end is near means we need to step up how we're loving one another and see that as our priority, as God's people. Uh, Jesus taught that as evil increases, as the end draws near, people will love others less. He said that in Matthew 24. It's not on the screen. He said, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So because of, of massive lawlessness and sin, we tend to get inward, we tend to draw back, we tend to get jaded. 
And Peter says just the opposite. Keep loving one another fervently from the heart. So Jesus, when he knew he was a few hours away from being murdered by crucifixion, loved his disciples till the end. You see that in John 13. He served them by washing their feet. And he says, just as I have loved you, love one another. So here's Jesus going to suffer way beyond anything we could ever imagine. He knows it's coming way beyond anything we could ever anticipate in our own lives because we don't know what's going to happen three seconds from now, let alone three hours from then or three days or 30 years. But Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and so he modeled for us, when we know the end is near, love our brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly, fervently, constantly. That's what that word means. Constant, fervent love for one another. And that's easier said than done because sometimes we're not easy to love. And that's why Peter says what he says. Yeah, so amen from, from the crowd back there. Um, <clears throat> he, he starts talking about specifically how we can love one another. And so he mentions a major reason just in this verse for the priority of loving one another and for how it works in the community of Christ's people is love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's right. We are to keep loving one another earnestly since love does what is so frequently needed in the church, covering over one another's sins. Meaning, we reflect the heart of Christ, His redemptive love for us, by covering, by overlooking a multitude of sins. We're a multitude. There's a lot of opportunity for sinning. We do it. We have opportunities to love one another by overlooking one another's sins. So this aspect of love, its sin-covering, offense-overlooking role in the body of Christ is so vital for that obvious reason because we sin, we fail a lot. And the closer we are to one another, the closer we get to look at that and see that in one another. So if we say, well, these people are hard to love or that person is hard to love because of this and that failure, yeah, that's right, that's how it works. And so our love for people and their love for us is frequently going to be minimizing and overlooking, not magnifying uh, our sins. We should be eager because of what Christ has done for us, delivering us from sin. He did a massive payment for our sin, unlike anything we'll ever have to do. And that sets the tone for our minimizing the sins of others. Now, sometimes love means, it does mean at times, that we do confront one another for sin. So it doesn't mean you never confront, but we do it with humility and we do it with much covering privately and graciously, with hope for repentance in toward Christ. But our stock response should be me toward you, you toward me, and us toward one another, is not magnifying one another's faults, not making sport of talking about how this person messed me over or how awkward and obnoxious they are or how whatever adjectives we're tempted to put there. We want to see as much as possible People as Christ see them. People who, yes, we fail and stumble, but we overlook, we don't magnify, and uh, we recognize how often we sin and annoy people a lot ourselves, so we are sensitive to loving others by overlooking their sins. Not to hold it against them, not to gossip about it. Okay, enough on that, because you're getting annoyed, so I'm going to move on. So verse 9 Another way that we can live in light of the soon coming in and to love specifically is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
So hospitality was really crucial in those days because uh, there weren't comfortable lodging facilities. And so for the uh, Christian mission to continue, and most of them could not afford lodging if those sorts of hotels, such as they were, existed. They were very expensive and they were very dangerous. So hospitality was vital for the advance of the mission and the willingness of believers to provide lodging for visiting workers. And in addition, churches met primarily in homes. So uh, churches didn't gather unless someone was willing to open up their home. So hospitality was necessary for that. Uh, Hospitality, on the other hand, can be wearisome, can be tiring, can be bothersome, especially if it continues on for a long time. You You got a guest who basically is camped out. That can take its toll. And so that's why Peter had to say, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, without griping, without complaining. So today, it's still valuable uh, virtue for us to, to be hospitable to one another. So we get, we get to do that in community groups, hosting in groups in one another's homes. Uh, we get to do that in neighborhood mission. So be on mission in your own neighborhood by showing hospitality, whether it's cookouts or inviting people into our homes, those kinds of things. Or we get to host visiting Christian workers, and we get to connect with others in closer fellowship. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, how are we doing at showing hospitality for Christ's mission, for loving one another? How are we doing in that? We, we're a pretty hospitable con- congregation, so that's, I'm, I'm glad for God's grace toward us in that way. Uh, so we can always find ways to excel more in that. Uh, Greg referred to the opportunity we had as a church campus here to host uh, the f- cancer fundraising for Lori for uh, raising funds for her, the yard sale to raise funds for her uh, stage four lymphoma treatment. That was just one way we could do that corporately, but all kinds of ways we can do that in ways big and small as a congregation. And so that is a thing that is, uh, Christians have done throughout the centuries. Another way we can love people is by using our spiritual gifts. And so we see that in verse 10 and verse 11. Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received a gift. That word gift, that very word, is the word we say it in English. It sounds like charisma. And that's a grace word. That's the word for grace. So by definition, these are grace gifts. Each believer in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, whether that's two minutes old or 40 years old in the Lord, uh, you have at least one spiritual gift. And as I said, each of these gifts is a gift of God's grace. It comes with your grace package at your salvation. Spiritual gifts, what are those? Those are enablements. They're empowerments. They're uh, by God's Spirit for areas of service. These gifts, what they feel like in your life is they shape your perspective on what is valuable, what you're passionate about. They shape your motivation for areas of ministry so that you will find joy in using them and you're effective in building up the church with them. And so we are to use these gifts. They're not like fine china that sits on the shelf we never use. They are to be put into use. That's what Peter says. Use it to serve one another. So each spiritual gift of grace is to be used for serving others. We all have natural talents and abilities. 
Uh, spiritual gifts are not the same as these abilities and skills, though we serve God with all that we have, natural and spiritual gifts. It's, sometimes it's hard to sort that out. We don't have to do that, but we do recognize if you're a Christian, you use all that you have for God's glory and for the service of others, and included in that is spiritual gifting. And God often gives spiritual gifts that complement our natural talents. Sometimes not. Sometimes he does. So we'll look at, at just briefly uh, four passages in Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts just so we can catch the flavor of what con- continually shows up in these passages. In Romans twelve six, we see we have having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So we have different gifts. We have different measures of gifts. We have, they are all gifts of grace, and we're to use them. Or 1 Corinthians 12, a couple of verses there. To each is given. Each person has a spiritual gift, and it's the manifestation of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God showing up in our lives for the common good. It is the gifts to be shared. It's the gifts to keep on giving. And in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So each one of us has specially crafted gifts from God, spiritual enablement, spiritual empowerments, to serve him and bring glory to him and to serve others, just exactly as God has willed it. So it's not random. He's not just like scattering random gifts and kind of like a grab bag sort of thing. You got specifically designed by God gifts for you to use. And Ephesians 4, 7 Grace was given, so very clearly these are grace gifts, to each one, so we say it again and again and again, each one of you has at least one gift, if not more, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that measure of Christ's gift in the rest of that text uh, talks about his victorious resurrection power that he accomplished in descending to earth, accomplishing redemption, ascending back to heaven in victory, and he distributed spiritual gifts that communicate that power to you. So you are loaded with resurrection power, ready to serve others. Did you know that? You just are. So you, you, Hopefully you've not been keeping it well hidden, but uh, that is how you're gifted. And Jesus is a good delegator of his gifts. He's not hoarding them. He has passed them out like crazy to millions of people on this planet. And Peter goes on and says, we do this as good stewards of God's varied grace. The word translated steward there in verse 10 was a word that referred to a guy that served as a manager of a household. And we get our word economy from that word. And he was an administrator that was hired to make wise and faithful use of the finances and assets of another. So... Uh, that manager or that administrator did not acquire or produce these assets himself. He was hired to use the assets and riches of another person to, to make use of them for the purposes assigned by that owner. He does not own the gifts so as to use them for his self-serving purposes he, or for him not to use them at all. The one who hired him expects him to use them to serve his purposes and for the good of the owner's household. So spiritual gifts are resources entrusted to us to use uh, by Christ, entrusted to us by Christ as stewards, as managers, as administrators. I know those are cold words. I'm a manager. I'm an administrator. But they're very rich words that say, I have been entrusted with Christ's spiritual gifts that he has assigned to me to make use of him, 
His power and His grace to others, His authority, His resources that we're to use for building up His church. You know, it's interesting how Peter describes the gifts that we are to steward, to manage, to administrate. He says they are gifts of God's very grace. Uh, They are gifts of God's very grace. God's grace is not just a kind of a milky sort of blah fabric. It is varied. It is multifaceted. It is, it's manifold. It's many-folded. It's diversified. No two believers are gifted alike, even if you have the same gifts as another believer. It's very various, very multifaceted, very designed, and very creative. So the gifts that God's given us to use are diversified. His grace gifts portfolio is diversified, a ray of grace, empowerments that the whole church richly expresses his grace. No one manager carries the full responsibility for for building Christ's church. So some of us have a wider scope of responsibility than others, but none of us is in charge of the whole shebang. Uh, All of us have to contribute. We get to contribute. So we're all responsible for building Christ's church. That's what these gifts are for, building Christ's church, either inviting new members or building up those who exist. Since God has gifted each one in his grace diversity, we, we distort and dilute God's purpose for the body when we don't use our gifts. It's not, it's, it's not as Christ designed it. All of us are to be functioning in our gifts. Someone said, said it this way, Whatever your spiritual gifts are, they are not for you to own, control, consume, or attain positional authority. They are given through you so that others may be equipped, encouraged, and integrated with Jesus and his body. So if you're serving using your gift, you enjoy it and are energized in using it. They don't equate to some position in an organization, a church, or anything. Sometimes we have a position in a church or a mission organization. Most of the work is done by people who don't have those position titles. Uh, But the gifts are not for ours to hoard or to disuse, but to use. And if you use them, that means you'll enjoy it and you're energized in using it if it's your gift and others are equipped and encouraged by it. So in verse 11, Peter breaks out more about how these gifts, what these look like. And he breaks them out and he says three things about them. There's speaking gifts, there's serving gifts, and they're all for God's glory. So looking at in verse 11, Peter expects us to use our gifts according to whether they are speaking or serving gifts. Uh, Both types are for serving others, but he also uses the the word serve to refer to deeds-type gifts that are not necessarily speaking-type gifts. So it's a nice, simple way to divide the gifts. I've got speaking, or I've got serving gifts, or I have some of both. Uh, Peter assumes, by the way, that his readers already know their spiritual gifts. He assumes, and he just, because he just says it, if you've got this gift, type of gift, use it. If you've got this type of gift, use it. And so does Paul. Nowhere do they stop and say, okay, now let me tell you how to discover your spiritual gift. He just assumes that people have discovered and they know their gifts. Now, often we think you can't know your gift until you've been a Christian for 150 years and you've gone through all these battery of written assessments. Now, I have used these, some of these written assessments and probably will again. They're, they're not wrong to use. Uh, but I think the best way to know your gifts is to serve wherever you can, especially in areas that you have an interest or passion for. We all get to do things and all participate in things that are not necessarily our area of giftedness, but you should major on the things that are that. 
So as you do this, and if you haven't discovered your gift yet, it will become more and more evident the more you just pour yourself in, be the first one to sign up rather than the last one or not signing up at all to be involved. And, but the more you do this, it will become evident to others and to you what you are effective and fruitful in doing and what you're not so effective and fruitful in doing. Just as with schooling, you start out general. That's why they take you through all the classes that you hate as well as the two that you like because you need a general foundation to, to kind of get everything on the table and then you start specializing. That's how it works in our education system or doesn't work so well, but anyway, that's the theory behind it. And so that's how it is in the body of Christ. You just Everybody get involved and then you start getting more and more zeroed in on, you know, this is what I'm really effective at. This is what causes people not to grimace but to actually... Be grateful that I'm using that gift. And so he says some of us have speaking gifts. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Oracles. Oracles. We don't use that word a lot. We'll talk about that. So the passages that mention specific areas of spiritual gifts are Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. There's four passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, this text, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. So speaking gifts include apostleship, prophecy, teaching, speaking in a foreign language that you didn't know, called otherwise speaking in tongues, and exhortation and encouragement. Those are some of the speaking gifts. So whether your speaking gift is more exhortation encouragement oriented, or whether it's more kind of preaching and teaching, or whether for small groups or one-on-one or larger groups, um, You should speak as one who speaks the very words of God. That's what Peter is saying. It doesn't mean you expect immediate divine inspiration like God just, I open my mouth and God just drops words in it. But it does mean that you are ruthlessly tethered to the word of God as you counsel people, as you encourage them, as you exhort according to God's revealed word in Scripture. So the question before us is, do you have a speaking gift? If you've been a Christian for more than, I'm going to give you at least six months, it ought to start showing up. You ought to start having some kind of sense that that is one of your, an area that you're gifted in. And much more of it is going to be informal than formal. Well, because I'm not standing up and teaching in a class, I don't have a speaking gift. It doesn't mean that. Um, Many people are great, informal, conversational, gospel, talking, word of God, counsel, encouragement people than they are formal, stand up and teach people. We need both. So, but it does mean that as I'm serving Christ and I'm serving His church, I'm not spouting my own wisdom. Well, I just like to think I am really concerned that the Word of God inform all that I'm saying. And I'm keep, I keep going back to that again and again and again. Now, it, it does include ways the Spirit may prompt or burden you with specific admonitions and words of encouragement. Many of us have experienced that. Boy, I've just really felt a burden to share this with this person or... On the spot, I really had a sense I needed to share this with that person. But still, it's not going to be contrary to the Word of God. So that, in a brief nutshell... See, I told you, brief, brief oversight, because that's what Peter's doing. So we're not drilling deeply into any of these things, because we want to just go with Peter's flow. So uh, he moves on in in the middle part of verse 11 to talking about serving gifts. And he says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So serving gifts from the various gift passages include things like giving, administration, leading, mercy, helps, healing, miracles. And so 
we love these gifts when we're in need, right? We have leadership needs in the church. We love people to show up for that. When we need, when we're suffering, we love people with the gift of mercy. When, hey, we love it when people can pray for us and we get healed. There are so many ministry needs that require these serving gifts. Setting up, cleaning up, ushering, funding, financing, helping widows and others with physical and financial needs, visiting the sick and lonely and discouraged, helping with outreach and fellowship events, music, technical needs, communication, planning events, food, 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 leading, serving on mission trips and projects and child care. Now, whether we've got a particular serving gift or not, as I already mentioned, we all get to participate in serving uh, in various needs along the way. So we should all, for example, at times do acts of mercy. If you are a bad mercy person, just be very careful about how you don't show mercy to people, but you're still not exempt. Uh, help, helping those in need, giving to ministry. All of us are required to, to give and participate in mercy and mission, but those who are gifted in these areas will have exceptional ability to serve them. Why? Because they do it by the strength that God supplies. The strength that God supplies. And I'm going to ask this question. Do you have a serving gift? I know bunches of you do, and I've seen you in action. So I know the answer to that is yes. And the question for all of us is, are we using it fully, as effectively as we could? Or are we using them, but maybe not in God's strength? Because that's what Peter says is the effective way to use these gifts, is by the strength that God supplies. So we sometimes get worried about people who have serving gifts, they're going to burn out because they can. But if they're doing it by the strength that God supplies, that means they're relying upon His grace They're energized by serving. You know, some of these people are just like the old commercials, the Energizer bunnies. They just keep going and going and going because they are relying upon God's strength. Now, they've got to watch about neglecting family and all of that. But uh, we sometimes worry too much about people who are gifted going whole hog after the use of their gifts. So we've got to use them in balanced ways, but not so balanced that we end up muting the effectiveness that they can be. And they help, and this is true of all the gifts. When we're using our gifts... We help others who don't necessarily have those gifts participate in those things. So like a person who has the gift of mercy, even if I don't have the gift of mercy, I can learn from them to be more merciful. That's how it works in the body of Christ. That's why we're supposed to so cross-pollinate and be around one another and serve together so that we rub off on one another using our gifts, even in the areas that we're not gifted. We all keep growing. At least that's how it can work. And the end goal of all of this is the last part of verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so that's the end goal of everything. Grace-gifted speakers glorify God by relentlessly relying upon, trusting in, and speaking His revealed word, grace-gifted servers, glorify God by relying upon and serving in the strength that God supplies. They show that they could only do this because God is supplying their strength. In these ways, we make it evident that the gifting and its effects are from God by His grace. He gives us the privilege and high calling of participating in His church-building work. In other words, we make it really obvious this is for God's glory and it's only by His grace that I'm doing any good for the kingdom. Anything good that comes out of my serving the Lord is by His grace and for His glory. Anything that isn't is stuff that He's refining me out of and from. 
So he gives us the privilege and high calling of participating in his church building work by his grace. So in other words, if pride enters the picture, that's a huge no-no, right? Pride has no place because it's only by God's grace and for his glory. Just as God's, just God's grace and glory. This comes around full circle. The passion for the glory of God in all things through Jesus Christ, and that's very key because we're magnifying the grace of Christ and so that is the central way that God is glorified as we speak much and we make much of Jesus in our service. And that, that's going to take different shapes in, in how we serve, whether we're serving in mission or internally among us as a body of believers. But Jesus needs to be the centerpiece because God has said that's where he gets the greatest glory is through Jesus Christ being magnified. And so we must pursue to pray to love, to show hospitality and serve in our gifts in view of the end. Are these things on our bucket list? Like, I know that my time is short and I'm going to major on keeping a clear head to pray, growing in how I pray. I'm going to major on loving the body, brothers and sisters in Christ, earnestly by overlooking their sins and their shortfalls as well as loving them by showing kindness and mercy. Am I going to include on my list of preparing for the end, showing hospitality and serving in my spiritual gifts. Those are what Peter says I should be majoring on in light of the shortness of the time. So that seems like a good list for me. And is it my passion that in everything God gets the glory through Jesus Christ? So that feels, that falls by the wayside unless I continue to be refreshed and encouraged by God's word participating in my gifts and being ministered to by others in their gifts, we need to continually remind one another of these truths for, for the glory of God. This also closes a whole section that Peter began in verse 11 that talks about uh, living as exiles or aliens for God's glory in a hostile world. So that's why he finishes by saying, to him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. You think, just like you think I'm almost done with the sermon, then I keep going for the next five minutes. It's sort of a false ending. Well, that is because he's finishing a section and he, he does have more to say. But I'm going to stop now and pray and then we'll continue our worship. Father, you are so good because you didn't just get us saved out of hell, rescued from sin only, merely. You have placed us as servants for your kingdom. And yet you didn't just say, go do it in your own strength. You said, please do not even think of doing it in your own strength. Do it in the strength that I supply. And you'll find your greatest joy and satisfaction if you rely upon my grace and you do it for my glory. And Father, as we speak your word, we want to be so addicted to the gospel and, and your word as what flows out of our mouths, what comes out of our lips at all times so that in all things Christ gets the glory and you are magnified and your name is great and your kingdom is advanced and your church is built up. And this, these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.